If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. When you think of fundraising for your nonprofit, what comes to mind first? Bake sales? Well, I hope not bake sales, but grant writing, silent auctions, direct mail campaigns. How often when you think about fundraising, do you think about donor-advised funds? I really need to figure out how to crack those. So today's guest, Arlene Kogan, is sharing guidance on the best approach to take for your highest payout on donor-advised funds. Now, Arlene is a certified financial planner with more than 20 years of experience in the trust and investment services industry. She has considerable knowledge and background in nonprofit fundraising and development as well. And here's why. She guided the ninth largest community foundation. That's the ninth largest in the country for over a decade. And she is the author of the book, Give to Live, Make a Charitable Gift You Never Imagined. So please join me in welcoming Arlene Kogan as we learn how your nonprofit can benefit from donor-advised funds. Hey, Arlene, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dolph, it's awesome to be here with you and all your followers. So you spent 20 years in the financial services world on the business for-profit side. What on God's beautiful green earth made you shift your focus to nonprofits? You know, it was really simple. I met the guy of my dreams. We had two daughters. And gosh darn, I had worked on Wall Street for 20 years. And I experienced the glass ceiling, sexual harassment, and wage discrimination. And I did not want my daughters to have to deal with that BS. So when I went back to work, after taking some time off to raise my daughters, I saw a career coach and everything came up 
philanthropy and benevolence. And I, and I looked at her and I said, okay, but how do you make money at that? <laughs> right? I'm in the for-profit world. Well, I quickly jumped back into the trust and investment world, but instead of the large institutions, I went to work for a couple regional trust companies. And I worked for five years trying to figure out if I am going into nonprofit, what does that look like? And I found a position with the Oregon Community Foundation working primarily with professional advisors and their clients. Very cool. And so how did you transition from working with professional advisors and their clients into really kind of community foundation leadership and management? Well, when you think about it from the estate planning and professional perspective, if everyone left all of their money to charity, there would be no problems with estate taxes and all of this planning. (laughs) And it was really funny because I had worked at two regional companies and then at the estate planning council conference, I was wedged between them at the community foundation and really knowing from the trust and investment world that people do want to make a difference, but they get jammed up and they don't know how to make that difference of uh, taking care of family, solving a financial problem and making that gift. So I wanted to break it down for people. So anyone could understand on basic digestible terms. Hmm. Nice, nice. And I just have to reflect really quickly that while I know not every billionaire feels this way, there's a lot of billionaires like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates that feel really strongly that um, that not that, that being allowed to leave their billions to families really promotes inequality long term, that it really promotes the injustices in the system that we so often see in our society. Yes, that is very true. It keeps them a preferred class in control of things. And it's wonderful when you see people like Buffett and Gates who want to give the the 50 percenters who are giving at least 50 percent of their wealth away. We need more of them. Right. And and I'll say, and, and certainly I, this is true for Warren Buffett, and, and I'm so impressed with him for doing this. He's always been very clear that, you know, he's leaving more than enough money to his wife if he should predecease his wife so that she will be comfortable for the rest of her life. But the vast majority of his billions of dollars will go to charity. Yeah. It's a great place to be. Now, now how do how do people move from the mindset of, okay, I've got to accumulate wealth and I have to accumulate as much as I can to the mindset of, okay, I've accumulated wealth, whether that wealth is a million dollars or a billion dollars, and now it's time for me to give some wealth away. Well, you know, it has to do a lot with finding purpose and meaning in life, your self-actualization. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with Abraham Maslow, he came up with our hierarchy of needs. And at the very top is self-actualization, which is where philanthropy lies. So I think after you've made whatever it is you make, to get to the next step, there's purpose and meaning. And that's where philanthropy helps people find that purpose and meaning. Nice. And so um, now let's shift gears real quick. How do nonprofits find these individuals who've decided to um, 
have purpose and meaning, but want to do it in kind of a covert way through, you know what, I need to take a step back. Let's talk about why donor-advised funds are kind of a covert way. Um, so may, maybe you could start with that, and, and I might chime in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> donor-advised funds, first of all, are a fabulous tool for anyone who wants to be engaged in philanthropy in a bigger group of like-minded, like-valued people. There is a low cost to engage in a donor donor advised fund with the community, but it really allows you all the fun of philanthropy without any of the aggravation of tax returns, administration. You get the fun of grant making and you let the larger community foundation or organization deal with the administration. Woohoo! It's the best tool in the world. Did I do a good job? So, 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 so you and I are on the same page about that. But, but admittedly, I'm a little bit of a lefty, and you, you might be as well, but so there's the other piece that I kind of want to talk about as well, which is, so since your donor-advised fund does not have its own 990, there's also not as much transparency about which causes you're directing your donor-advised fund's um, um, income to, because it's all kind of bound into one much larger 990 that probably includes thousands of donor-advised funds. Right. So, and because it includes so many, like at the Oregon Community Foundation, we had over, you know, thousand individual donor advised funds. So when at the end of the year, when they tell who is making the grants, they don't know who the grant is from because it's all lumped together. And it's also a great tool for those private foundations who want to make anonymous gifts. We would see a lot of private foundations creating donor advised funds so they could pass through money to an organization that they didn't want the organization to know they had that much money, whether they sit on the board or be a volunteer. If this, you know, I remember doing this many times, if this $100,000 gift came across their table, this woman would have been looked at in a completely different manner and would never be treated the same. So that anonymity that you can have through the donor advised fund is critical. Whether you be a millionaire or a billionaire or have that private foundation, you want to run the money through to be anonymous. Right. And so, but from the nonprofit's perspective, I think this also maybe presents some challenges because with foundations, you know, a nonprofit can go down to the foundation, sorry, to the foundation center and do research or, you know, get a guide star subscription and do research and say, okay, here are the foundations and, and here's the interests that these foundations have. And let's write a proposal for this foundation to build a relationship. Um, but with donor advised funds, it's not quite so easy. So how do nonprofits identify, for example, the donor advised funds at a community foundation and to make it maybe a little bit more uh, more specific, you know, let's say I'm the development director at the, you know, at Portland's largest homeless shelter. And I'm like, wow, you know, the Oregon Community Foundation has $1.5 billion in donor advised fund assets, and I want to try to get a piece of it. How do I figure out how to approach those donor advised funds without necessarily knowing who they are? There's, I would say there's three ways to get access to um, donors of a community foundation. The first one is, well, they're all kind of indirect. 
The first one is through the Community Grants Program at the Oregon Community Foundation. We had a community grant program that went out for applications twice a year. And when they came back in, they were shared with donor advisors who had an interest in that category. For example, if you were into the arts and the arts organization made a proposal, they would share that in the the twice-year packets they send to donors. That's one way. Another way at the Community Foundation is at our annual luncheon, they would highlight a number of different nonprofits in the community. So to apply to get beyond that short list of 10 people and it rotates every year would be another great way to have access. And the third and final way is to write a one-pager about your organization, highlighting the impact, and then share it directly with the donor relationship team over at your community foundation. And now chances are slip it in the packet that goes out to the donors so they could see that information. I I gonna say I love that and and this might actually be related to your third one but one of the things I've always suggested also doing is you know most community foundations have program officers which are the you know the folks that work with grantees and if you've got a program officer and you've got a good relationship with them even say hey we have this special need um, we get that it's probably not good for your general fund impact grant you know process is there a donor advised fund that that you think might be interested in this. And then they kind of go as well to your, to your donor relations team and advocate on your behalf and say, Oh, you know, the homeless shelter really needs to buy a hundred new beds because whatever they had a bed bug issue and they can't get the bed bugs out of the mattresses. Yeah. And that's another way as well. There's a lot of little nuanced ways, but the important thing is to keep knocking at the door because that opportunity is there and you want to be visible so they know about them. So one of the other challenges that I think nonprofits sometimes have with donor advised funds, so if it's a major donor, if it's a foundation, once you get that first gift, you know how to cultivate either the foundation officers, the program officer at the foundation, or that major donor. How do you, how do you cultivate the donor advised fund when when it's anonymous and pretty much you know what you know is like your program officer's name or the donor relationship team? Well, I think that's when you start to look at really um, stewarding those donor relationship team officers, because there's always going to be new donors coming in and, you know, they're going to keep that person anonymous. That's their job. Uh, We have to respect that, but that doesn't mean you can't cozy up next to those colleagues and make sure they're spreading the word to the other people doing their job. Right. Now, now, and, and I think you're right. It is absolutely their job to keep it anonymous. Every now and then, though, um, you know, you will get your just kind of a, a check out of the mail or a check in the mail out of the blue for say twenty five hundred dollars, and you know, and it will say, you know, this comes from the um, Jim and Jane Johnson Family Fund, and so now you know that it's Jim and Jane Johnson. Um, is it ever appropriate for the organization to reach out directly to Jim and Jane Johnson and say? Thank you so much for the for the gift from your fund. Um, I would ask the community foundation representative, but also if they gave their name, I would 
take that as a as a reach out and they want to be acknowledged or reached out yeah. to. And- yeah. Okay. So, but so then also ask your your donor relations or program officer of the community foundation just so that you don't burn that bridge and have them feel like like you went around behind their back and tried to get more money. <laughs> yeah, of course, you know we have to respect those boundaries, and right. that's an important part of our job. So, do you have other ideas or thoughts um, about ways nonprofits can um, cultivate those? donor advised funds that are currently supporting them potentially to maybe get more money in the future or larger gifts? You know, just always thinking creatively and out of the box, I would actually approach a program or those donor relationship officers and offer to help create a program around that cause, not necessarily the specific organization, but the cause, whether it be animals, mental health, basic needs, and see if you can create, have them create something where you'll bring your donors and they'll bring their donors of interest. I've seen that work before as well. Can, can you give us an example of that? Um, you know, we're in Oregon. A lot of people like the environment and we have a big donor who was very into the environment and outdoor schools and OCF ended up doing a big program around the environment. And every year they do and they bring together donors and other leaders in the nonprofit environmental world. So really powerful work. Mm-hmm. And, and that leverages potentially additional gifts to other environmental organizations or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, what are some of the no's? Like, you know, what are some of the things that organizations should never do when approaching or cultivating a donor advised fund? Well, first of all, never ask for a pledge, a written pledge from the donor, if you know who they are, because that is a separate legal binding position than making grants out of the donor advised fund, which you are not an owner of because you have made a completed gift already. And, you know, you know, I'm, my synagogue right now is in a capital campaign and I am going to be paying that through my donor advised fund. And they're like, sign the paper. And I'm like, I can't sign the paper. Sign the paper. I'm like, you'll just have to take my word. <laughs> Big No. Okay. So, so I totally see that because it's no longer your money. You've, you've given it and that's why you got the tax deduction when you made the gift. Totally get that. What are some of the other no's? What are some of the other no's? Um, get having too many people advise on a fund and not having a clear focus and direction of the fund. I think there's an advantage to working within a, your donor relationship officer, um, to make sure, and I'm, I'm just thinking for a second, you're talking from the nonprofit perspective. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry about that. No worries. Uh, what are some of the other no's out there? You know, be gracious, a touch a month, you know, don't try and hound to anyone. No one really likes that. Just that you right. cultivate them like any other any other donor or any other allied professional attorney, et cetera, be in their 
radar, but not overwhelmingly so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, you know, l- let's say I, I'm the development director for the, for a theater. And so of course you're, I bet if you're the development dr- director for a theater, whenever you go to another theater and see your performance, you undoubtedly, and I know none of us who have fundraisers who have ever, ever, ever done this, you Never. undoubtedly look through the theater program book and what do you turn to first? You turn to the donor list and you don't start with the $50 donors. You start with the $25,000 donors, right? And so what happens if you see like the the Jane and Jim Johnson Family Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation? Is it okay then for me to reach out as the development director of this other theater to the um, to the Community Foundation and say, oh, we'd love to pitch the Jane and Jim Johnson foundation or fund yeah that would not be cool i see and i figured that would not be cool that's why i (laughs) wanted to ask that question (laughs) i mean you know that's taking throwing like darts that's throwing darts but i would say if you're a good development person why not reach out directly you know their name figure out how you could get introduced to them maybe not even through the community foundation you know you said you were LinkedIn fan and or Facebook, you know, how many degrees of separation are you? Uh, Oregon tends to be small. And I always joke around two degrees of separation, I could get to anyone in the state. So So, what's your like, but but so so it would be cool, then, for example, to ask your board if any of them know Jane or Jim, and to invite them to a performance as their guests, that would be cool. That would be expected, man. These board leaders need to lead by example. Come on. Yeah. So, and let me say, um, listeners can't see it because we're, but we have video. I have two thumbs up right now. I agree. That's expected of the board. Absolutely. And not only is it expected of the board to introduce you to other people on these donor rosters, it's expected of the board that they introduce you to their attorney, their CPA, and their wealth manager. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, because those are also good ways in a donor advised funds, aren't they? Yes. And when I was at the community foundation, I brought in 30 to 40% of all of the statewide giving because my sole purpose was advisors. Yeah. Yeah. I could totally see that. Um, well, Arlene, I want to make sure that we have time for an off the map question. And I think I've got, this one's actually not so far off the map. This one might actually be on the map, but just the other side of it. So, so often I'll be talking with an executive director or development director, and I will kind of ask a question like, you know, they'll talk about their major giving program and I'll ask them, you know, well, you know, where, where are you a major, you know, which organization are you a major donor to? How do you like to be treated? And they'll almost always reply to me, well, you know, there's really no organization that I'm a major donor to. And so I'll I'll kind of reply back, not even a smaller organization where $1,000 is a major gift. And normally the response I get is, you know, I work in the nonprofit sector and I don't make that much money. So yeah, not even a $1,000 gift. Now, my question to you, because I know that you are all about helping individuals figure out how they can make this amazing lifetime gift that, you know, will will continue beyond their lifetime. 
So how can someone who makes a moderate income, say working in the nonprofit sector, still figure out over time how to establish some type of a fund that will live on beyond them? Oh, that's a great question. And it's really kind of simple to answer. It's also in my book. So there there are a couple ways. The first is um, endowing a gift. Let's say that person hasn't made that major gift yet, but they give $100 a year to whatever that organization is. In their estate plan, you take your annual gift and you multiply it by 20 and you get $2,000. And if you leave a $2,000 gift to that nonprofit as an endowed gift, that will, in perpetuity, give them that $100. Now, if they want to save money, they do a beneficiary designation out of an IRA. It's the most tax-advantaged way to make that gift. And it costs them nothing to do. So one, they should do that. Every board member should do that. Number two is many community foundations have what's called a step-up fund, where you start with a lower dollar amount, and each year for the next uh, two, three, five years, whatever your agreement is, you put in that amount of money to reach the minimum amount for grant making. Now, when I was at the community foundation, I was like, this should be required for all board members. If they put in 5000 a year for five years, they now will be one year into their second term on the board. They'll have a fund and they'll get the full advantage of knowing how much fun it is to have a donor advised fund and the difference they can make. They should all be doing it. If they're on the board, lead by example. I, I love that. And I'll share with you that I, like you, I think that's one of the easiest ways for moderate income people. And, you know, and it may, and maybe like, you know, if it's someone who's a social worker, it's not even $5,000 a year. For a lot of community foundations, the minimum amount is 10, especially like community social change foundations, the minimum amount's 10. So if you put away $1,000 a year for 10 years, boom, suddenly you have a fund that outlives you. And at 5%, it gives $500 a year for the next 100 years. And that's significant. That's a gift you never imagined. Right. Yeah, right there with you, Arlene. Completely right there with you. So now, a follow-up question. How can you and I encourage most people in the nonprofit sector to think about making a life-changing gift like that? Well, I'm going to kind of approach it in two ways. One, as fundraisers. Um, we are transcenders. So after Abraham Maslow died in 1990, they added three new levels to his hierarchy. And the top one, over self-actualization, is transcendence. Transcendence where we help other people self-actualize. So we are at the top of the pyramid. Lucky us. But when you look at making that life-changing gift, it goes back to basics. It's easier to ask for money once you've given it. It makes you feel good. You get something back from it. And what's life-changing for you is not life-changing for a millionaire or a billionaire or someone else. So it all has to be proportionate. But I can assure you, when you make that gift, when I I created my do- our family donor advice fund after my mother passed away. And 
we had the heartfelt conversation of what are you going to do with your inheritance? And it was very simple that creating a donor advised fund to pass down those values, life lessons and stories was a key thing. And the that has changed our family's life. We made a huge, the biggest gift I ever made. And my heart opened with joy and glee and our family came together. And I've seen this hundreds of times with families at the Community Foundation. And if you want to have joy and bring closeness and fulfillment together, go create a family fund, man, and just have the fun of philanthropy. Oh my gosh, Arlene, I love that challenge. What a, what, a, what a great way for us to close this out. That's incredible. As I promised, not so much off the map, but a great way to close it out. Arlene, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time to enlighten us about opportunities for nonprofits with donor-advised funds, as well as opportunities for nonprofit professionals to have that joy of maybe creating their own donor-advised fund one day, whether it's through a windfall or whether it's over time. Now, Listeners who want to get in touch with Arlene can find her at ArleneCogan.com. Now, there you can learn more about her book, Give to Live, or you could also just go to Amazon and get it directly at Amazon. Now, if you live in an amazing place like Portland or Phoenix or New York that still has brick-and-mortar bookstores in the downtown sectors, maybe you could just walk down to your favorite bookstore and ask them, if they don't have it on the shelf, to special order it. You might be doing others a favor because I'd be willing to bet the order three thinking they're going to sell the other two copies to other people. Hey, Arlene, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Dolph, it has been a pleasure. Now, if right now you were go- Googling donor advised funds near me, don't do that. Google your local community foundation. Google your social change foundation. Those are the folks who are much more likely to help you find your donor-advised funds. But if you're busy Googling that and you were not able to type in Arlene's contact information, don't worry. You could just go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and from there, you can get all of her contact information at our show notes. Now, I say this every week to your listeners, but I say it because it's important. Please subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating. Now, a review would also be incredibly awesome. I appreciate your time in letting me know if the information that we're providing to you is useful to you and your nonprofit. So even if you don't write a review, if you want more personal contact, reach out um, through SuccessfulNonprofits.com to me by email. I promise you I respond to Every single person who emails me, sometimes it takes me a few days, but who emails me from the podcast. Um, I also just want to say a fond farewell to Brianna Owanba. She has been our special projects coordinator and one of the driving forces behind the podcast for almost the last two years. Um, Brianna knows that I feel this way about her. I could not imagine continuing this podcast during some of my busier periods without her driving it forward. Um, She has, however, left us so that she can prepare for law school. I know she's going to make a great lawyer one day, and and I'm grateful to have been a small part of her journey. This is also a good opportunity.
really be a part of somebody's early professional journey. So he will soon become the driving force behind the podcast when I say, I'm busy, I'm just too busy to get the podcast out this week. And Isaac will slow my roll and tell me, no, we're going to produce the podcast and it's all going to be okay. Now that, my dear listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.